Sweet is the lore which nature brings, our meddling intellect misshapes the beauteous form of things we murder to dissect. Enough of science and art, close up those barren leaves, come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives. These off-quoted words of romantic poet William Wordsworth are typically taken as the atomic core of the romantic period's antipathy to rationalism, enlightenment thinking and, of course, scientific reductionism. To dissect is to break, to cut, to fragment into constituent parts. The very study of things, the attempt to comprehend, understand, is a failed endeavour that is not in tune with the life of things as they occur. What is more, Wordsworth tells us that this type of thinking makes things that are in some way defective, where the meddling intellect misshapes the beauteous form of things. The prize of turning our backs on the barren leaves of knowledge is we will gain a heart, an inner core, an emotional sensitivity, a heart that is, yes, vigilant as it watches and receives, but one that is alive, fresh, in tune with life itself. In other words, it is vital. Wordsworth's poetic opposition between life and death reveals the priorities of vitalism as a philosophy. Life comes first. Knowledge, matter, reason are secondary and derivative of life and spirit itself. The spontaneity of life as it occurs is what the poet must attune themselves to, but also the philosopher, who are obliged to illuminate how matter makes spirit. The vitalist philosophers have, then, very similar concerns to Wordsworth. Vitalism is a set of philosophical propositions that matter is not foundational, that the material world cannot be described in reductive terms. Put more positively, vitalism proposes the existence of principles not found in inorganic matter nor nature, or, if we think about it in biological terms, living things, that is, living organisms, have vital forces that actively contribute to arranging any organism's material constituents. Life is not dead and cannot simply be explained in instrumental or mechanical terms. Part 1 the origins of vitalism. The vital spark, the ilan vital, the creative impulse, even occult powers have their origin, for better or worse, in Aristotle's philosophy. Aristotle's supposed vitalism is found most obviously in his famous theory of causality. There, Aristotle famously posits the idea that all things have four causes, the material, the efficient, formal and final causes. Aristotle's idea is that for something to exist, it must have been caused. There has to be matter, material cause or stuff. As well, something has to act on something else, the efficient cause, the chisel of the wood. And there is also the formal cause, the essence, the patterning of an object which shapes matter into a particular sort of thing or shape. And there is, of course, the enigmatic final cause, the purposive cause, or that towards which things move, the telos. It is the formal cause which usually makes Aristotle a vitalist, the idea being objects, substances, things, 
have a power over their material constituents which shape them into specific things. It is both the formal and the final causes which tend to be derided by modern science. Alternatively, the instrumental or efficient cause, deterministic cause and effect, have fared better. If you think about it, it is hard to measure or observe a final cause, something that is virtual, a tendency towards something that does not quite yet exist. And that is not at all helpful if we want to talk about empirical observation, which of course brings us to another interpretation of vitalism, one which modern science tends not to have any truck with, and that is soul. If we think of Aristotle as a crude vitalist, then it does not seem so strange. But, of course, this all depends on what we mean by vitalism and what we mean by soul. If we think of soul in a supernatural sense, or as the term is applied in religious traditions as in a material force, acting on material things, then we can say Aristotle was a vitalist, where he is especially concerned with entities different to kind from physical objects. In this way, and it is not entirely wrong, Aristotle is concerned with activity, the moving principles which make life possible. One objection to this view is Aristotle was not a dualist. For him there was no radical separation of the organic and the inorganic. His theory of causality being a prime example, all causes operate together, holistically, to make substances function in the way that they do. So, there is at stake a different idea of soul, or a different idea of that which is vital. Aristotle's distinctive idea of soul is most famously expressed in his work De Anima, or On the Soul. Interestingly, though, the soul is present in what might be considered his more scientific or biological or physiological writings. For example, the soul is present and touched upon in a number of Aristotle's treatises, such as Generation of Animals, on Respiration, on Plants, the Movement of Animals, on Youth, Old Age, Life and Death, and the Progression of Animals. All these are unified by Aristotle's attempt to provide a nuanced, detailed and systematic account of how animal life interacts with its environment. I think more than anything, if there is a vitalistic element to Aristotle, it concerns how animals exchange and transform the matter they interact with in the physical environment. Here, what is called soul refers to a deeper sense of the processes through which organic life operates and progresses. This latter idea of a soul is a much more developed one. Here, Aristotle, like much of the later vitalists, becomes a very sophisticated materialist. Here, what's called life explains the multiple ways life organises itself biologically, how forms of life abstract and exchange material with their environment. This latter view gives us a richer picture of the purposive drives than the simplistic version of vitalism as a supernatural force that sparks animus. Aristotle's views shape and make possible our understanding how all forms of life and organic bodies adapts to and transform their material environment with a view to experiencing, reproducing and sustaining their forms of life across time. Part 2. Later Vitalism The Aristotelian understanding of life was received at its relative merits throughout the history of thought. For example, in the ancient world, the classical physician and surgeon Galen developed Aristotle's ideas. 
Galen drew a distinction between the voluntary and involuntary, that is, between vital pneuma and psychic pneuma. As Aristotelianism was influential in turn well beyond the medieval period, it wasn't really until modern philosophers like René Descartes and Francis Bacon that we see vitalism somewhat lose its currency. Part of this was because, as mentioned, the Aristotelian worldview was not dualist in the same way that Descartes was, or Bacon's idea that nature is a thing that needs to be dominated or ordered. Aristotle saw bodies as ensouled, or soul and body are considered inseparable, or at least connected but not reducible to each other. In the 18th and 19th centuries, vitalism was very much debated, endorsed and rejected in tandem with developments in the study of biology. Here, debates fixed upon the opposition of the mechanist and vitalist, that is, those who thought we would eventually discover a physical or chemical explanation to account for the difference between life and death. Here we could think of famous biologists like Javier Bichat and those who argued life processes are not reducible to material or mechanistic processes. Here, for example, we could probably think of famously of Darwin's precursor Lamarck, who is often accused of vitalism, although it's not entirely clear. As we will see, this debate continued into the 20th century with Henri Bergson's distinction in creative evolution between what he calls mechanism and finalism. Speaking of evolution, the Darwinian revolution of the 1800s contributed to the demise of vitalism as an explanatory force. Indeed, in many ways, Bergson's creative evolution could be described as a bit of a last stand, one last sustained attempt to cast evolution in a vitalist light. However, significant evolutionary biologists have been hostile to the vitalist tradition. Take, for example, biochemist and discoverer of the double helix molecular structure of DNA, Francis Crick. Crick commented that, and I quote, and so, to those of you who may be vitalists, I would make this prophecy. What everyone believed yesterday and you believe today, only cranks will believe tomorrow. There are many cranks tomorrow. Or, more recently, take evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins' comments, and I quote, Life isn't like that. Evolution has no long-term goal. There is no long-distance target, no final perfection to serve as a creation criterion for selection, although human vanity cherishes the absurd notion that our species is the final goal of evolution. In real life, the criterion for selection is always short-term, either simple survival or, more generally, reproductive success. In both these views... Dawkins, specifically, the origin of life has no telos. There is no Aristotelian telos towards which things move. Biological life is achieved by an informational transfer of genetics from parent to offspring. Any goals are retained, stored and circulated from parent to child through genetic inheritance. Natural selection accounts for how living things are directed and disposed in certain ways due to physiology, biochemistry, environmental adaptation, and, of course, deep, deep time. So, what then is vitalism? Well, more sophisticated versions of vitalism would follow the Lamarckian version of evolution. Lamarck did think there was a radical distinction between organic and inorganic life, or between living beings and inanimate objects. However, he did offer a much more nuanced version of vitalism, 
Lamarck's biology was a repudiation of Bichat's vitalism because he wanted to incorporate evolutionary processes. For Lamarck, organisms certainly evolved, albeit they did so in purposive and idiosyncratic ways. Organisms have a disposition to evolve towards or in directed ways. This directionality he labelled pouvoir de la vie, or power of life, or life force. Of course, the term life force will be will make our scientists run for miles. Sounds much too flaky. Anyway, this meant that the tendencies, powers or forces of the organism endeavour to sustain order in the face of environmental change. Vitalists like Bergson will take up this point in their view of evolutionary theory, which argues that species inheritance has a constraining as well as a freeing effect. This is essential to evolutionary survival, in fact, because it enables variation to be constituted of both targeted and required variation. This makes a sort of sense. If you think about it, variation is constrained and formed by whatever overall biological system is at work, whether that is a bee, flower, tree, or or human. This notion will be taken up in renewed form in Bergson's 1907 Creative Evolution. There, Bergson suggests that what makes life intelligible is the complication of life and duration. Life develops its own drives and purposes, which develop a peculiar history or genesis, continually adapting to the past of a novel future. Without this principle, no life, survival or evolution is possible. Part 3. Vitalism in the 21st Century The discourse of vitalism in the 18th and 19th century tends to follow the core idea of vitalism, that is, that life is inexplicable in mechanical terms. With discoveries in science, such as the discovery of genetics or of developments in quantum theory, vitalism tends to take a backseat in the intellectual life of the early to mid parts of the 20th century, at least in the Western intellectual discourse. This, however, changed in the latter part of the 20th century. There are primarily two reasons for this. Firstly, developments in science in the mid to later part of the 20th century, and here I am referring specifically to the discoveries in complexity theory, information, cybernetics, even types of economics, which take an organic view of the operations and processes of nature. The second reason is the work of continental philosopher Gilles Deleuze. Deleuze saw himself as a radical empiricist, someone who wanted to understand matter in terms of activity and processes. Here, what is important is not so much the material properties of things as how they interact. Deleuze's philosophy is classically vitalist. The structure of matter is secondary, and what is primary is supplementary forces, activities, or dynamic processes which make things work. Work is key here. If something works, it is existing. Thinking of the operation of activity, process, or becoming is tantamount to thinking the structure of reality. As such, ontology is vitalism. This perspective led Deleuze to unambiguously claim that everything he wrote, and I quote, is vitalist, at least I hope it is. Well, that's what Gilles Deleuze says. We see Deleuze take up this claim in his early work, Bergsonism, where he expands upon Bergson's theory of memory, duration, and élan vital. Deleuze's 
contribution to the resurgence in interest in Bergson specifically, and vitalism generally, led to fecund developments in what is called new vitalisms, new materialisms and post-humanism. New materialism pushed vitalism towards the most recent innovations in physics, technology and biology. The key question becomes, what is the status of life across disciplines? There was a distinct interdisciplinary facet to the newest iterations of vitalism, drawing on natural, social and the humanities. In the same way that life is not reducible to material properties, thought itself is generated across disciplines. Here we could think of the work of Rosie Berdotti, Karen Burad, Donna Haraway and N. Catherine Hales. The work of new materialism see vitality as an emergent phenomena. The task of philosophy, then, as the unifier of all the disciplines, is to think through the implications of relational interactions of material objects. Feminist philosopher and physicist Karen Barad offers a good example of this transdisciplinary appeal. In her work, Meeting the Universe Halfway, Quantum Physics and the Entanglement of Matter and Meaning, Barad develops a theory of what she calls agential realism. Agential realism, while not something it should be noted Barad explicitly calls vitalism, is at least vitalist adjacent with his theory of interactivity, or the inexhaustible dynamism of objects in space-time matter. The vitality of reality is defined in terms of objects as transformation, transmitters of change and interaction. The common denominator of new materialist thinkers like Barad, Bradotti and Haraway is that reality is thinkable only in relational terms. All objects are plural, developmental and complex, and exhibit a vitality or a liveliness which is recalcitrant to static structures or systems. In conclusion, vitalism seems to be, if you forgive the pun, alive and well. In some ways, we have not gone beyond Aristotle's substance metaphysics. The material causes of things are simply insufficient for explaining how things hang together. There we can detect the origin of vitalism, where Living things have surplus properties or activities not derivable from inanimate matter. In another sense, in the form of new materialism, vitalism attempts to incorporate the latest insights from physics, biology, technology and economics of the arts to make explicit the spontaneity of life, the vibrancy of inanimate matter. Vibrant matter, as Jane Bennett calls it. New materialism is an interesting iteration of vitalism because rather than expand vitalism by appeal to some mystical or supernatural living force, they attempt to expand reality in terms of activities, processes and the life between things. This between does not, it is important to remember, reject the role of matter or materialism. Neither did Aristotle after all. Rather, the question is, how does matter activate itself towards the ends of life? For the vitalist, matter is not at all lifeless, dead. It is, as Jane Bennett puts it, radically vibrant. <laughs>